The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to an hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Once again, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, I am so glad to have you back. Good morning to you, Mom. Good morning. It's a new day filled with delicious opportunities, and we're really glad that you've tuned in. Every Sunday, we share informative, entertaining, and scrumptious conversation about fabulous food, living a better life, travel, technology, and more. And we hope that you find everything delectable here, from fall braises to football food to simple sweet desserts to wow a crowd. And we're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. It was a good week of food, in fact. Uh, We've had pots of chili simmering away on the stove, even though in many parts of the country, like here in Southern California, it's still a warm one. I will say. Yes, <laughs> and pretty spicy at that. <laughs> yeah, yes, very true. Um, but we thought we would kick off this hour with the intention of making you a better cook in your own kitchen. We try to share informative, entertaining, and delicious conversation. And I believe that great cooks become better cooks when you think like a chef. You can read along and find recipes once again at chefjamie.com. Or by the way, become a Facebook friend and fan or find me on Twitter as well at Chef Jamie Gwen. So what does it take to build a big, beautiful bowl of chili? Lana, what do you think? Because I think what's most amazing is that chili is one of those glorious recipes that doesn't need a recipe, right? It does not. But you have to start, of course, with your choice of meat. Yes, that I agree with. And whether it be ground or cubed, I think the possibilities are rather endless. You know, if you're using a high-end cut like filet mignon and you're making espresso black bean beef chili, you might get a good dice and a little bit more toothsomeness out of it. If you're using ground beef, it could be beef, it could be pork, it could be venison, it could be bison, also known as buffalo. Very lean chili comes from uh, a good buffalo or bison, which I happen to love. Or turkey. Or turkey chili. And also when I've been making of pork chili, I've been looking for pork cheeks. Yes, you have. Yes, to see if uh, if you can't do, find pork cheeks, of course, by a pork shoulder. You know, I happen to love the dichotomy of those quote-unquote fancier cuts of meat, like if you would consider pork cheeks or short rib chili, some of the unique cuts that we find that happen to be much less expensive than the traditional high-end cuts, especially of beef and pork. So there's really a wonderful way to add depth of flavor when you incorporate some of the newer quote-unquote meats. Most definitely. And also sausages. Mm. There's so many good sausages out there on the market. Oh, for sure. And you, you could make a chicken chili if you used a chicken-based sausage, one that's mm-hmm. full of your favorite peppers or seasonings. It's a great way to add uh, really extraordinary flavor. I, I believe if you could find a sausage with fennel in it. Mm. It truly adds great flavor. I I agree with you, and it's because I was raised in your kitchen. I think two things are better with fennel seed. Well, maybe three. Sausage, chili, and tomato sauce. Because Michael Chiarello, who's a great Italian cook we know, taught me to make tomato sauce 
with fennel seed and it brings a whole new incredible component to the the acidity of the tomatoes it sort of rounds it out it needs a little bit of sugar or a sweet carrot too now are we talking about toasting the fennel seed and grinding it yes for sure or with a tomato sauce if you're making a bouquet garni or you're throwing in herbs that are in a cheesecloth pouch you can throw the whole fennel seed in and some Italian cooks I've seen since Michael in fact will throw the fennel seed into the saute with the onions and the garlic and they actually just dissolve into the sauce you won't find them you know really crunching after a good 30 or 45 minutes of cooking down good red sauce you know interestingly enough the origins of chili are rather muddy uh, but the two basic elements of the dish have long been prevalent in the plains of the American Southwest the historical record has Texas cowboys cooking chili over campfires in the early 1800s and today the Lone Star State is the spiritual home of chili culture still. Um, I think one of the best things about chili is that it it makes, holds, and reheats very easily. Mm-hmm. And it feeds a crowd. You get really maximum flavor and minimal effort. And then depending upon where you live, it's the regional difference that differences rather that make it distinct so like if you're a Californian like we are we started putting white beans or you know cannellinis in the Italian style or Spanish white beans into our chili and made it signature uh West Coast style. If you live in Cincinnati, you add cinnamon and allspice to your chili and you serve it over spaghetti. So it depends on where you live as to how you make your chili. But no matter how you like it, the basic recipe, which is traditionally made with ground beef, some sort of chili, tomatoes, onions and garlic is very true to the Tex-Mex tradition. With that said, there are two varieties of dried chilies that we love. And I'll speak for you, Lana, because you like them both because neither of them pack such heat that they take away, I know, from the flavor of the chili to you. Mm-hmm. But they have great smokiness. I love anchos, the crimson, beautiful, smoky, fabulous dried pepper. And then guajillos in the Mexican style. Um, they have a medium heat, but a really incredible mahogany Uh, color and depth to them. And they're very earthy and aromatic. And so for chili heads, those would be the best places to start. You want to toast them in a pan and then uh, reconstitute them in water and then puree them into a paste for the most traditional of chilies. And let's not forget pasillo peppers. Pasillas, I happen to love as well. And lower on the Scoville chain Mm -hmm. or on the Scoville scale. So less spicy, but still very flavorful and a great substitute for green peppers. And then if you're a serious chili head, you know, if you want to make your chili sing with uh, jalapenos and you want to add the seeds and the, and the veins, then go for it. And chipotles. And chipotles. All those good smoky, spicy flavors. Now, if you are like me and you have a sweet palate, One of my secret ingredients, don't tell anybody, is a shard of chocolate in every pot of chili, either bittersweet or Mexican. The Mexican chili has the cinnamon already strewn throughout, and I think it enlivens the bowl of comforting goodness like nothing else. And in rich, deep chilies, you don't know it's there, but chocolate is my secret weapon when it comes to a great pot of chili. It definitely brings out the flavor. And if you only have unsweetened cocoa right. in the house, use a little bit of that. It's a great suggestion. We've listed all the basics, everything you need from one to 
10 to make the perfect pot of chili today. And as I mentioned, you know, this is one of those great American dishes that you don't need a recipe. So pull out all the necessities as listed on chefjamie.com under Think Like a Chef. You'll see it. It says on the homepage, building a big, beautiful bowl of chili. Pull out all your ingredients and just go for it. I mean, the fabulous flavor awaits you. And don't forget that spicy sensations need a cooling factor. I've listed a lime crema, just a simple topper, along with all of the uh, absolute chili toppings you could think of, including um, my microwave brittle. We mm. like to put a shard of that brittle stuck into the oh, chili for football it's fanatics. It's How always about fun. what goes under the chili? Ah, yes. There okay, shall I tell the Frito story? Yes. Okay. The first time I ever ate chili with the great Emeril Lagasse, I will tell you, he didn't pull out a bowl. He pulled out a bag of Frito's chips, opened the bag, rolled down the top, and ladled in two huge scoops of hot fabulous chili and proceeded to stick a spoon in it. Now, I suggest you put a bowl under it because, by the way, the bottom of the bag gets hot. But there might be... And it feels a little funny. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but there might be few more fabulous uh, flavors than chili and Fritos combined. And there are lots of wonderful things that you can use as a bed for a bowl of chili. I love lime rice. Yeah, ooh, I nice. love French fries, oh, whether so they good. be sweet potato fries or spicy herbed fries. Speaking of um, sweet potatoes, by the way, coming up, our last bite later on in the hour is all a bit about spiced sweet potatoes. Mm. Lots of good bases for chili. Lots of recipes posted at chefjamie.com, so don't miss it. And the Cook with Lana recipe this week, which is perfect for chili, oh. is one of your favorite things on the planet. Have to serve chili with uh, a corn muffin. For sure. And your recipe actually has sour cream in it, which mm -hmm. I think adds an incredible texture to the crumb, mm -hmm. which I really love. Uh, don't miss the Make It Tonight recipe. It's our baked rigatoni with ham and four cheeses. And it's a recipe that's reminiscent of a family family favorite from a casual Italian restaurant we used to go to. So if you have leftover ham and a hodgepodge of cheeses in your cheese bin right now, you can have baked rigatoni with ham and four cheeses for dinner tonight. Mm. It's a killer recipe. And it's really ooey gooey delicious oh. with the crispy top. And let's not forget it's October now. Yes. Oktoberfest has begun. <laughs> yes, with October comes Oktoberfest. <laughs> and I happen to love that as well. One of the most amazing things about Oktoberfest to me is it is the world's largest fair literally around the world. It is held annually in Munich, Germany. It's a 16-day festival, and it has more than 6 million people from around the world that attend it every year. Pretty amazing, wow. right? Now, the wow. main attraction is the liquid gold. I mean, we know the beer <laughs> is the most important part, right? So uh, beer lovers, listen here. There are some really beautiful imported varieties of Oktoberfest available on the shelves of your favorite uh, mm. liquor store, mm -hmm. wine shop, or supermarket right now. And there are a couple of domestic varieties that really pair well, too. Oh, fabulous beers out. Yes. And don't forget to serve it with pork schnitzel uh, with a warm potato salad. If you're making spetzel, I'm coming over. <gasps> that, one too. Of, one of the traditional uh, characteristics of the style of Oktoberfest Oktoberfest beers, which was invented around 1840 and has continued, um, is the Vienna lager style. And it's called Marzen, as they call it, which is German for March. It was traditionally brewed in the spring. Um, and that was the time of Germany's legal brewing season. But it has a very malt forward profile. And if you're looking for something imported, look for a beer called 
Iyengar Oktoberfest Marzen, A-Y-I-N-G-E-R. It's really an incredible example of a brewery in Germany um, near Munich that is a hands-down favorite. And if you like a domestic, Samuel Adams makes an Oktoberfest every year that's extremely drinkable and I think a perfect pairing. And it has a little bit of toffee flavor. I tasted it um, earlier this week, in fact, with a bowl of chili. Um, And uh, it was pretty delicious, I must say. Um, We'd like to take a moment to honor um, a, a great and fabulous foodie just this past week in fact uh, Marcella Hazan who you heard on this show who brought a taste of Italy to America passed away and her cookbooks definitely helped revolutionize Americans conceptions of what real Italian cooking tastes like she was 89 years old and she will no doubt be missed uh, Marcella it was a pleasure to have you on the radio and we thank you for sharing your passion always all your life and stay tuned because there are passionate food lovers in your radio as the delicious conversation continues we're taking the rich flavor of caramel to new heights with cookbook author carol bloom also coming up we're making pretzels at home oh there's a killer recipe for a pennsylvania hard dutch pretzel on the website at chefjamie.com you could become a pretzel master and andrea slonecker is going to create artisan pretzels in your radio plus jeff michaud is taking us on a culinary adventure of eating italy so stay tuned. Grab a snack and come on back. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Don't go away. Crunchy, chewy, savory, or sweet? We're making artisan pretzels today. Chef Jamie Gwen, your culinary coach in your radio. Warm from your oven, soft, salt-flecked knots or densely crunchy, dark brown twists. Andrea Sloniker joins us live. She is the author of Pretzel Making at Home, a new cookbook just released. And I'm so excited because we love pretzels around here. Andrea, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. The book is wonderful, and I'll tell you why. I love the sort of single concept approach to mastering a culinary technique. And your book is a really extraordinary example of that. Start, if you would, by giving us a little bit of the background or the history of pretzels. It's believed that pretzels were invented in the year 610 AD, so a long, long time ago, Um, somewhere in the region that is now the border of Italy and France. Mm -hmm. They were invented by monks. And they were, it's thought that they were invented to be little rewards for children for mm. learning their prayers. And that's where the pretzel shape comes from. It's supposed to represent a child's arms crossed over his chest in prayer, which is the practice back then. So that is the origin of the pretzel. It's hard to say how they eventually became a German tradition, and Germany really took them in as their own, and it's really an iconic German food now. Was that a soft pretzel or a hard pretzel? That, that was making? soft pretzels. Those yeah, were soft. soft. And that was before they had that characteristic dark color and flavor. It was just little scraps of bread dough that they would fold into this mm-hmm. twisted pretzel shape. And when did hard pretzels uh, Hard come pretzels about? didn't come about until the Pennsylvania Dutch immigrants brought them over from Germany to the area of Pennsylvania around Lancaster County. And they um, were an invention there, and it was actually a kind of a happy accident. One of the young apprentice bakers at a bakery in the 1800s accidentally left a batch of the soft pretzels in the oven overnight, turned off the fire, you know, it would have been live fire, uh, closed up shop and went home for the night. They came back, and the pretzels were little 
petrified crunchy crackers and they were so surprised how delicious they were so they started selling them and marketing them i love texture Uh, my thanks to him because yes, there's nothing know, better right? than crunch, right? Yeah, who uh, knew? He invented one of America's favorite Favorite snacks, snacks exactly. Yeah. I want to talk about tying the knot because there are lots of pretzelisms, as you yeah. say. And mm-hmm. along with that religious symbolism, there's a, a very good consideration of the sign of the pretzel knot being very good luck, Andrea, right? Yeah, it's believed that it's good luck. It's, as you mentioned, tying the knot. It's been used as a symbol for marriage. For the binding contract of marriage, you know, you're twisted together. So it's been served at wedding ceremonies. So mm. yeah, there's lots of tradition around this. And the background. Food. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I love all that depth of history. If you would, let's talk some pretzel basics. The pretzel pantry made up of essential ingredients, some of which you can't make pretzels without. So go through, if you would, for us, um, beer, butter, flour, and then we'll get to lye and a substitute that you share, which we love. Well, I'd say that the basic ingredients to make a pretzel would be flour, water, yeast, salt, and an alkaline, which is what gives it the characteristic color and flavor on the outside of the crust. In my recipe, I enhance that, I guess you could say, with the addition of beer to substitute for some of the water because I think it adds a really nice yeasty, hoppy flavor, a little bit of barley malt syrup for sweetness and malt. Um, I add a little butter for texture and richness. Yeah, I like that about you, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, it, it just adds a really nice mouthfeel and mm-hmm. kind of voluptuousness to the flavor. So I love that addition. Okay, and then talk to us, too, about that coating on the outside. Because Lana and I had an interesting conversation about lye, mm-hmm. right? You need the lye dip, essentially, to create the crust, which embodies the pretzel mm-hmm. and locks in the soft textural component on the inside and gives you the color on the outside. But I used to think that lye was dangerous to work with. Right. And controversial too. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the the lye dip or I call it alkaline because you can achieve a similar effect using baking soda or anything that has a really strong alkaline effect. That's really what makes the pretzel a pretzel. That's what gives it that flavor that can only be defined as the pretzel flavor Um, the dark color, the leathery texture, that gloss. So that is something that was believed to have been um, discovered, I guess, a little later in the life of a pretzel. And it was kind of another happy accident. It's believed that a baker accidentally dipped the pretzels in his cleaning solution, which would have been a lye-based solution, and baked them. And he probably would have thought that it was a sweet glaze that would have been used for breads back then. So um, baked them, and it had this curious minerality and color. And it was just like this amazing new bread that he invented. You talk about food-grade lye in the book, Andrea, and that it's nothing to fear. You can order it online. But we love your substitute uh, because you can make a baking soda solution, which, by the way, we've shared Andrea's supreme recipe for Pennsylvania Dutch hard pretzels along with her tips for a lye dip or a baking soda solution substitute at chefjamie.com. The recipe's excerpted from Pretzel Making at Home. If you've just tuned in, we are crafting artisan pretzels. I love it. And I love this idea of the alternative to working with lye. There is no doubt about it that lye gives you the most authentic flavor and texture in the pretzels. But I was so lucky that when I was researching this recipe, the legendary food scientist Harold McGee came out with an article in the New York Times 
about how to replicate the effect that lye gives to foods. Because lye is not just used for pretzels. It's also used for curing olives, for making hominy. Um, it's used in the canning, um, commercial canning a lot. Mm-hmm. So there's many uses for it. It's also used for Chinese noodles, things <laughs> like that. Um, so he discovered that if you take a bottle of baking soda, dump it out on a baking tray, put it in a low oven, maybe 250 to 300 degrees for about an hour, it comes out of the oven with a pH that is much more similar to lye and gives a much more similar effect on the pretzels. And it's just really incredible how it makes it so much more accessible for making pretzels at home. I think that's amazing. I Talk about culinary science bettering all of yeah. us in the kitchen. No matter where you are, there's a different style of pretzel. Well, when you're in New York, you must stop at a cart yes, to it buy is. a soft pretzel. <laughs> for sure. Nothing like a pretzel vendor. Mm-hmm. And then on the West Coast, where we're both based, tell us um, what, what's your best pretzel find on this coast? I had so much fun with this book, researching it. I tra- traveled all over the country going to different pretzel bakeries and spending a day with the baker, learning their technique and their tricks so that I could share that with the home cook. And some of my favorite places I stopped at were Fresen Bakery in Portland. There's a a Bavarian baker named Edgar Loesch who immigrated to America and set up shop in Portland and is churning out these amazing German baked goods. And he sells pretzels at many farmer's markets in Portland and at many retail and restaurants. Down in L.A., Rock and Wagner. True Bavarian style. I do Absolutely. still find the difference in taste between the New York or East Coast water yes, and out here because a New York pretzel is very different than ours. The typical New York street vendor pretzel is kind of not what I was going for, actually, with my book, because I find those pretzels to be a little bit too, uh, let's say, cardboard-like. They're made in a factory, and they're frozen for months and then you know, reheated and sold on the street corner. What I was really interested in is discovering these artisan bakeries that are kind of resurrecting this old traditional way of hand-making pretzels. Yeah, and there's a beautiful artisanal approach to it, Andrea. Yeah, exactly. So like in Manhattan, there's this woman, Lena Kulczynski, who has a fabulous bakery called Sigmund Pretzel Shop. She was a pastry chef with Jean-Georges von Derricken, and she is doing amazing, cool things with pretzels, kind of with respect to the old world, but bringing in her new um, ideas with flavoring. She does an olive and feta pretzel. She's kind of taking the idea of how bagels can have all these different flavorings, like the everything sure. bagel and cheese toppings and things like that, and doing really fun uh, representations of that. So, yeah, that's one of my favorites. And then in the Pennsylvania Dutch country, there's America's first commercial pretzel bakery, the Julius Sturgis Pretzel Factory, and that's in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. And they specialize in hard pretzels and... They just have this really nice, crunchy, very straightforward pretzel flavor that I love, too. And a lot of tradition in that. Now I have three new culinary destinations on my vacation plan. (laughs) Andrea, thank you. You've given us an opportunity to taste pretzels across the country. And Andrea is giving you an opportunity to master pretzel making at home. All of her topping ideas from aged cheddar cheese to vanilla icing, cinnamon sugar, to her recipe suggestions for everything from pretzel bread pudding with salted caramel sauce. Oh, I can't wait to make that. 
wild <laughs> mushroom and chestnut pretzel stuffing and even a, a pretzel ice cream, all of them found in her newly released cookbook called Pretzel Making at Home. The author, Andrea Sloniker, we have posted an excerpted recipe along with her best tips at chefjamie.com. There's a link there as well so that you can order your own copy on Amazon. Lana, I vote for buttery pretzel crackers. Oh. Are you in? Oh, and an apricot Riesling mustard for Mm. dipping. Mm. Oh, Andrea, that sounds killer. Yeah, those are two of my favorite recipes. I'm going to soak yellow mustard seeds in Riesling wine right now, and we hope you'll come back as you continue to elevate the pretzel and bring us more wonderful ideas. Absolutely. We'd appreciate it. As the delicious conversation continues, you learned it here. Stay tuned. There's more scintillating conversation right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio with new ideas, quick tips, and easy recipes. Caramel, the word alone conjures up really warm, comforting, fabulous memories for so many of us, doesn't it? Well, we're talking the rich, luxurious flavor of caramel, and we're taking it to new heights. Carol Bloom is a European-trained pastry chef and confectioner who has worked in five-star hotels and restaurants in Europe and the U.S. She is the award-winning author of 10 other cookbooks, and her most recent release just days ago is a glorious cookbook titled Just That, Caramel. I am expecting that this will be considered the best cookbook of the year. It is fantastically beautiful. It is truly pleasing easy and clear to understand, and there is nothing intimidating after you have read Carol's new book about caramel. She's here to dish on the sweet stuff, and we're delighted. Carol, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Thank you, Jamie. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you. The book is just spectacular. It made me want to lick the pages. (laughs) That's great. The photos are luscious. Thank you. Yes, they're they're quite beautiful. I have to say I was very pleased with the photographs myself, the way they came out, and the whole design of the book, I'm just very happy with it. It's, it's very substantial, but easy for people to do. So nobody should be intimidated by it. No, not at all. And I know years of expertise and time and effort went into this beautiful manual on a subject that I don't know many that don't love. If you would, though, to kick off this conversation, clarify for us, is it caramel or caramel? Actually, it's both. I think in the U.S., we mostly tend to say caramel, but caramel is more of a European style of pronunciation. So people can feel comfortable pronouncing it either way. And what are the basic ingredients we need, if you would take us through the steps? Because I believe that if you master the classic caramel sauce, then you can make just about anything from there. Well, I would agree with you. And that's what I do in the book is classic caramel sauce is one of the key recipes and it's used in many of the other recipes in the book. So basically caramel is made from cooking sugar and water, maybe a little bit of honey or corn syrup. You cook those together over high heat until they come to a boil and then you let it cook undisturbed until it turns a nice amber color. And this could take anywhere from six to nine minutes, depending on what surface it is that you're cooking it on. At the same time, you're going to be heating a certain amount of heavy whipping cream in a separate saucepan. So when the caramel is amber colored and the cream is boiling, you slowly pour the cream into the sugar mixture. And you want to do this with a long-handled heat-resistant spatula, 
And you want to wear an oven mitt because what's going to happen is it will bubble up furiously. And you just keep stirring, and this will keep it very smooth and even. And then you want to continue to stir to make sure there's no lumps. Then you take it off the saucepan. So take the saucepan off of the heat and stir in a little bit of butter until it's melted. And then I like to add a little bit of vanilla extract to it. Mm, I do too. So that's your basic caramel sauce, and you can use it warm or you can cool it and chill it and then use it in other recipes. Right, or you could eat it out of the pot with a spoon. You could. Or you could <laughs> just spoon it directly into your coffee or glaze your morning breakfast treat. Uh, there are a few different variations on a traditional caramel, and the different colors are often specified in a recipe, light, tan, or dark. In That's our right. family, Lana and I, I was always taught to take caramel to the nth degree, Carol, mm-hmm. uh, darker mm-hmm. than you thought. Because that beautiful, rich, dark, not burnt, but really exceptional flavor came from taking the caramel farther than you imagined you should. And because once you add the cream, of course, you dilute the richness of the sugar. Uh, Can you weigh in? That's true. You do dilute the richness of the sugar when you add it in. One way that you can deepen the flavor without taking it to the nth degree is to use brown sugar, and you could use light or dark brown sugar. There we go. Then you're going to have to be a little bit more conscious of the color so that you might actually have to pay a little bit more attention to the time that it cooks because you won't be able to tell quite as much by the color. But it's true, the darker um, that you cook the caramel, the more intense the flavor. But you have to be careful because once you take it dark, it can burn in just seconds. Very true. You need to be really careful when you do that. Um, But light, tan, or dark, they're all used in in different recipes. One of the tools for making caramel, uh, or caramel for that matter, Carol, (laughs) is I think one of the most intimidating factors of it. And that is you need a pastry brush and water. And Mm -hmm. even for connoisseurs alike, this is where I think they get caught off guard. What do you mean I have to brush down the sides of the pot? What if I don't do it? How many times? I I think this is where the intimidation factor comes in. I think you're right. First of all, you want a sturdy pot. So I happen to use an enamel cast iron pot. It doesn't have to be a copper pot. Um, You do want a pastry brush. You can use a silicone pastry brush. And what I mean by brushing around the sides of the pan is you just dip the pastry brush in water. When the mixture, the sugar mixture comes to a boil, you merely run that around the inside of the pan where the sugar mixture hits the side of the pan. And this helps to prevent the sugar from crystallizing, meaning that it will pull itself out of the mixture and form this white crust around the pan. Mm. So you just have to do that a couple of times. Also, in my recipe, I have a little bit of honey in there, and that is a hygroscopic agent. It's a big word, but what it means is that it keeps the sugar from crystallizing. So you could add a little honey or a little corn syrup. They both do the same thing. And then you wouldn't have to brush down with the pastry brush. You said the magic word. You don't have to use the pastry brush to brush down the sides of the pot. And now caramel just became a realistic culinary adventure for everyone listening, which I love. Salted caramel, all the rage, Carol. Oh, Um, yeah. Yes. Talk to us, if you would, about creating that salty, sweet, incredible deliciousness. What I do is I will add a teaspoon of 
a fine finishing salt like fleur de sel, which is a French salt. There mm-hmm. are so many wonderful salts out there on the market. I wouldn't use actually regular table salt, and I do tend to use a lot of kosher salt rather than table salt as the salt in my baking. But for the salted caramel, I prefer to use one of the fine finishing salts. Mm -hmm. You also want to make sure that it's not real big grain, that it's a fine grain salt. But you do want to be able to get a little bit of that crunchiness in there as Mm -hmm. well. So it's kind of a balance uh, between the sweet and the salty. And they just sort of counterpose each other and they really highlight each other. Yes, there's something heavenly. I plan to make chocolate cupcakes with salted caramel buttercream frosting from your book. Oh, wonderful. And I think your um, caramel coconut tart is taking the world by storm even before the book released. For those that love coconut, you say this tart is for you. Absolutely. And I happen to be a coconut lover and a caramel lover. Chocolate as well, although chocolate is not in this recipe, but it's a great combination. Um, and so this tart uses just a fabulous classic pastry dough, and then we use some sweetened shredded coconut that is lightly toasted. And the filling is made with classic caramel sauce and creme fraiche. So you mix them together. Oh, so it's very easy. You can have your caramel sauce in the refrigerator made a week or two in advance of when you want to use it, and then you would just warm it up to room temperature, mix it with the creme fraiche, spread it in the pre-baked pie or tart shell, and then garnish it with the sweetened shredded coconut. So it's very easy. Super simple. I love that combination of creme fraiche and prepared caramel sauce because you can make dessert at any time. If you That's have right. a mason jar of homemade caramel sauce in your refrigerator, the cocoa and caramel sandwich cookies look delectable as well, as do all of the recipes. Wait till you are inspired to make salted caramel dark chocolate chunk ice cream, caramelized roasted pears, uh, just a hint of what awaits you in the new cookbook release from Carol Bloom. It is called Caramel, and she is taking the rich luxurious flavor to new heights. It is, I think, just clearly beautifully written. Um, There are wonderful photos so that you can create treats that are styled as gorgeously as Carol's. And you are an expert guide. And um, so we thank you, Carol, because I can't wait to make caramel after caramel dessert or (laughs) caramel after caramel for that matter. Um, And congratulations. It's really a spectacular cookbook. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for it. And I think I think everyone out there will find something wonderful in here that they can make and share with family and friends. Oh, most certainly. You can find an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com where we're always serving up seconds and you can learn more at carolbloom.com. There's more delicious conversation in your radio right after this. Please don't go away. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. This is cooking and entertaining from a chef's point of view, teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours. The following is a love story. Before award-winning chef Jeff Michaud ever opened the doors of his acclaimed Philadelphia restaurants, he spent three years in northern Italy as a culinary apprentice to master butchers and chefs, immersing himself in the culture and the cuisine of the old country. What happened next is the love story with his now wife and a love story 
with food. It's part inventive cookbook and part travel narrative. And he's taking us on a culinary journey of eating Italy, the new and truly beautiful coffee table cookbook that's just released by that same name, Eating Italy, is written by Jeff Michaud, and he's here to share it. We're glad to have you, Jeff. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, Chef, if you would, take us on a virtual journey of your Italy. It all started at a butcher shop in early 2003, right? Yeah, I kind of packed all my stuff up, and I moved Mm -hmm. to a region in Italy called Lombardia. In that region, there's a town that's called Bergamo, and in that town, there's a lot of small towns. The first town that I moved to was Paladina. And uh, I worked at a little family-owned butcher shop called Amangili. And it was just a life-changing experience. <laughs> they raised all their own animals. They slaughtered and uh, butchered all their own animals. And attached to the butcher shop was their retail store where you could come in and order anything you wanted and tell them how you wanted it cut. I mean, we used to have these little old Italian ladies come in and, and order half a cow. And they stand there and tell us that they want these cut into short ribs, these <laughs> cut into shanks. This much ground. <laughs> That's one of the things I truly love about Italy is I think that they get to the heart and the root of their incredible passions for food. And I think there's something extraordinary about that. Aside from the fact that in Italy, a fig tastes like a fig and a tomato tastes like a tomato. And the photos in the book jump out from the pages. I can't wait to make the pappardelle with the veal ragu and the peppers. And I know that veal from the butcher shop had to be the best you've ever tasted. Next, you moved on to new cities, new towns. You met new people and you continued to cook and hone your skills. Yeah, I worked in about, you know, five, six different restaurants while I was there. You know, three or four of them were Michelin starred restaurants. They were all really small, family owned, run by brothers and wives. I stayed at one particular restaurant the most time I was there, and that was called Afrosio, which was in a small town called El May. Mm-hmm. And it was in a 14th or 15th century building that uh, was just beautiful. And they lived on the third floor. I lived on the second floor. The restaurant was on the first floor. So basically, you go there, you work for free, they feed you, and they give you a place to stay, and you just immerse yourself into the, into the kitchen. Yeah, but with all due respect, Chef, they feed you pear and treviso salad with Telegio dressing. Right? I mean, in this beautiful little town, and one of the things that you, I know, recall from the stories in the book about the fall season and about this beautiful restaurant is that there was always a big piece of Telegio cheese sitting on the table. Inspire us with this salad, because I can't wait to make it. Oh, I mean, that Telegio comes from that region. Their aunt has a, a cave where they would buy fresh Telegio from the cheesemakers, and they would cave age it for months. Oh and it was just some of the best Telegio. I can't, to this day, we can't find that Telegio in the States. So we, we always get it when we go back. And the salad, just a real simple, uh, simple salad. I just did a, a cookbook, uh, uh, cooking class. Right. Um, in Boston a little while ago, and I did the salad for them. You just toss the salad in a little bit of vinegar, a little vinaigrette, red wine vinegar, olive oil, and then you make a dressing with the Telegio cheese. You kind of make a, a fonduta. You boil the milk, add the cheese into it, and then emulsify it with some egg and olive oil. And then you oh. drizzle that all over the top of it. Oh, okay. You had me at fonduta. <laughs> Honestly, the Italian method of melting cheese as a dip or to be included in a dressing like you talked about, there's something so incredibly luscious about it. 
I, you want to spread it on your elbow. I, it doesn't yeah. need a dipper or bread, but I can't wait to create the melted cheese mixture. And then you beat in the egg yolk, right? And the olive oil, a little bit of sherry vinegar, salt and pepper. And you have what is a warm melting cheese dressing of sorts. Yeah. And that's some real classic. Pleggio is kind of a stronger smelling cheese. And they usually do that with bitter greens because it kind of cuts the bitterness out of the greens. Tell us the story of meeting your wife because it's so much uh, woven into your memories of Italy. And it's paved the way for an extraordinary career and for great acclaim as a chef. But from the book, I know that you still remember when she walked into the restaurant and what she ordered. Yeah, she, I think it was, it was April of 2004. I was working at Frozio, and I was working with the guy that was fashioning in the kitchen, and unfortunately he had an accident and he couldn't continue working, but he came into dinner one night with my wife now, and they were childhood friends, and I, I think he had it in his mind that, that, uh, that he was going to set us up. And, you know, that night I think I literally said like three words. My Italian was so so at the time. After she left, I called him up because we had dinner planned the next night, and I was like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> she wants to come out to eat with us tomorrow. Do tell. How uh, was her English at the time? Her English was... Better than your Italian? No. No, <laughs> was not. If you would, share with us some of your newest fall dishes. For those that don't know, uh, Jeff is um, a now worldwide known and acclaimed chef. He is the co-owner at Osteria Restaurant Ami's Restaurant and Ala Spina in Philadelphia, and you were named as the James Beard uh, Best Award for Best Mid-Atlantic Chef, and we know that the restaurant Osteria has been nominated as well. So next time we're in Philadelphia, you know where we're eating. Please let me know when you're in town. What's on the fall menu? What's inspiring you right now? I actually, I took some recipes from the book that we wanted to put back on the menu, and uh, one of them is the roasted duck with grapes and cabbage. Mm. That's my wife's uncle's dish, Uncle Bruno's uh, roasted duck. (laughs) Thank you, Uncle Bruno. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I steal a lot of stuff from her family. Fabulous. Well, it certainly seems as if your opportunities to eat Italy continue. And what an extraordinary <laughs> story. It is part love story and part culinary journey. And if you cannot go to Italy, you should go to Philadelphia. I've loved reading about the raves about your cuisine and can't wait to experience your restaurant. And congratulations. This is a book um, that is, I think, a beautiful account of your time in Italy, what you've learned and what you've brought here to us and transformed into a seasonal menu at all of your restaurants that really reflects the memories that I have and the beauty of Italy. And it's it's beautifully written and beautifully photographed and the recipes themselves too, I can't wait to make. So thank you, Jeff, for sharing your passion. Thank you very much. I we appreciate certainly it. appreciate it. That's what we call chef to chef, right? The opportunity to get multiple chefs' perspectives. And there's no doubt that Jeff made me hungry. I hope you too. I love food. I love eating it and looking at it and reading and writing about it and creating it and sharing it and talking about it, especially here on the radio. And I like to say, if you love to cook or love to eat, we can definitely be friends. So we hope that you'll tune in every Sunday for more delicious conversation. By the way, you can hear podcasts of shows over the past many years in In fact, we're celebrating 14 years on the radio, Lana and I, just last month. In fact, you'll find our podcasts week by week on iTunes under Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. And then this is our last bite for this delicious Sunday. There is a tuber that I love. It has sweet 
earthy undertones and a wealth of nutrients. Yes, it's the sweet potato. And although they are available all year round, fall is when the fresh crop comes in. So look for sweet potatoes now that are firm and free of any injuries. And be sure to preferably store them in a dark, dry, cool place, wherever your pantry is, preferably in a basket where they can have air circulating all around. And then what to do with them? Well, we talked about chili earlier in the show. In fact, building a big, better bowl of chili. It's how you can think like a chef. And at chefjamie.com, we're always serving up seconds. So you'll find uh, tips and techniques and a bunch of chef's tricks as well to make the perfect bowl of chili. We talked about what's the perfect base. And Lana and I dished on Fritos, her sour cream corn muffin, the Cook with Lana recipe this week. Um, All the great bases. How about Southwestern spiced sweet potato fries as the base of a bowl of the perfect chili? I love the brilliance of the sweet potato because it has all that natural sugar so you can really lay on the seasonings. So a couple of large sweet potatoes with a couple tablespoons of olive oil, salt, cumin, some chili powder, paprika, throw in some cayenne if you like. You cut the potatoes, leaving their skin on after you've scrubbed them and dried them into sticks about, uh, let's say, half an inch thick uh, all the way around. And then Toss them with the olive oil and the spices. Lay them on a silpat or silicone lined uh, baking sheet, a silpat mat or parchment paper. Arrange them in a single layer and then uh, they should be tossed with the olive oil and the spices and then roast them about 12 to 15 minutes in a high oven, about 425 degrees. And use that lime crema that I mentioned earlier for your chili as a dipper for these sweet potato fries if you're pouring a cocktail this Sunday early afternoon. And then call me and invite me over because I'll come. (laughs) That's what friends are for, right? Be sure to tune in as the Sundays continue of more fabulous food. And be sure to check out chefjamie.com and find me on Facebook and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen and know that it's truly, I think, a great privilege to be with you in your radio every Sunday. There's nowhere else I'd rather be. And on behalf of Lana, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you next Sunday right here on KFWB News Talk 980, and I hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.